Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. Many of us use the internet each day through our smartphones and devices, but how many of us stop to think about how the internet works? Wi-Fi or using different cables and modems to gain connection might be all we consider. I know that I personally did not think too much more about the internet that I relied on each day, but curiosity and conversations eventually led me to ask more questions about how the internet functions. It was an interesting consumer tension. Because while most of my life had been spent using the internet, I hardly knew anything about it beyond the surface connections between my devices and Wi-Fi signals. Is the cloud and cloud computing really this thing, untouchable, zipping through the sky? I've since learned that while many internet connections do happen on land and definitely involve these these signals, most importantly and surprisingly, they also happen along the floors of the world's oceans. In fact, in 2019, the New York Times released a report that there are already over 750,000 miles of cable connecting the continents that supports communication and data storage and entertainment demands. These cables are, in fact, not new. In our conversation today, we will learn more about the history of these undersea cables and their function. While learning about the real materials and structures of the global internet, considering their environmental impact is also important too. After all, miles of fiber optic cables surely require resources and create emissions to produce, transport, and place. So, As we consider an environmentally just future, we will learn why recent undersea cable decarbonization research is so important. As consumers of the internet, I hope this conversation today will be beneficial and helpful to understanding what really happens behind the scenes, behind the screens, or rather, under the sea, that makes everyday life possible for so many of us. So, this month we're going to have a conversation about the material realities of the internet and its connection to the environment. Dr. Hunter Vaughn is an environmental media scholar in residence in media studies at CU Boulder. Vaughn is a cultural historian and environmental media scholar focusing on the relationship between media, the environment, and issues of social and climate justice. In addition to teaching courses in environmental media and eco-cinema, environmental communication, and environmental justice and social movements, Vaughn is an author, journal editor, and lab director. Vaughn's book, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret, The Hidden Environmental Costs of the Movies, examines the environmental toll of some of the biggest cinematic masterpieces. Recently, Vaughn joined an international team of researchers to work on decarbonizing the subsea cable network as part of SubOptic, an international association of the subsea cable industry. 
We're so excited to have this conversation today. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bond. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's kind of go back to the beginning. Um, we know that you have a background in studying connections between the environment and media. So how did you get started on this journey? So my background's really, or at least, you know, it all began, I think, uh, my PhD, which focused on the philosophical implications of moving image culture, uh, as well as looking at different ethical approaches uh, to visual culture. At the end of my dissertation period, or of finishing my dissertation, I was fi finishing up in Oxford and I was coming home from a pub one night and there was this crazy glow emanating from one of the colleges. Uh, and I crept inside to see what it was and it was actually a run through for uh, a shoot of the Golden Compass, which was shooting in Oxford. Um, and one of the, the crew members told me that and I looked around and I saw like all of the infrastructure, all of the scaffolding, all of the power generators, the artificial lights, the humming, the electric cables, just all of the materiality. Um, and it blew me away that all of that was there just for a run through for the next day. And I suddenly realized that, you know, there was so much more in terms of the very real ramifications of, of moving image culture than I'd ever really considered. And I thought, you know, I, I was working very much on the, the social and ethical consequences of, of screen culture, but was very much doing so from an ivory tower theoretical vantage point. And it was at that moment that I realized just how removed from the real uh, my thinking about visual culture had been. And so that's sort of where the, the seed germinated, I suppose. Um, and then uh, gradually I started to look into, you know, a very nascent field of eco-cinema studies or eco-critical approaches uh, to, to film studies, which then gradually gave way to more of a material interest uh, in the environmental impacts uh, and effects of, of mainstream screen culture and then gradually beyond that to, you know, larger digital culture um, and, and the infrastructures of our contemporary uh, digital existence. Yeah. And I know that you've mentioned eco-cinema and, you know, when I also introduced you, I talked about eco-cinema. And could you break that down for just a moment so we all make sure we, we know what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So eco cinema, you know, refers to tends to refer to a multitude of things on one hand, or, or multitude of types of film culture. On one hand, it includes uh, feature fiction films that are about environmental themes. And this could be anything from like, uh, preser the preservationist films of the 90s, like a river runs through it, or free Willy uh, to um, sci fi uh, sci-fi climate apocalypse movies like The Day After Tomorrow or Avatar. Uh, on, you know, secondly, eco-cinema refers to a rise in documentary films that are focusing on environmental issues in this era of, you know, accelerated climate change and heightened visibility about climate-related issues. So anything from An Inconvenient Truth uh, to Blackfish to Chasing Coral, Chasing Ice... Um, and I think these have been largely expedited by uh, the emergence of digital practices, uh, whether it's the CGI apocalypse of the day after tomorrow, or whether it is the uh, content developing streaming 
uh, role that Netflix plays in supporting films like Chasing Coral. Um, and then thirdly, which tends to get left out of most considerations or familiarity with eco-cinema, is actually a pretty large experimental film culture, uh, an avant-garde film that uses avant-garde practices to sort of decenter conventions of representation or to destabilize uh, the the um, centerpiece of human subjectivity, try to maybe change our relationship with the surrounding environment or change our relationship to the rest of the natural world to make it less anthropocentric. Um, and so this is, you know, I think that these are the sort of three wings of what's commonly referred to as eco-cinema, but in general, it really refeel, uh, refers to trends in filmmaking and popular film that have been identified and are being assessed in academia. So eco-cinema is kind of a genre of filmmaking now. Eco-cinema studies has has blossomed as a major uh, pillar of film and media studies as a result of that. Sometimes it's referred to as eco-media studies as well. No, that, that's great, actually. I really appreciate that that explanation. Um, and it brings um, me to also another question. <laughs> or Did you have something? I would add that actually beyond those terms, uh, so for example, the, the journal I helped to found and that I edit is called the Journal of Environmental Media. And so environmental media studies is a term uh, used to go beyond the bounds of, of eco-cinema to acknowledge that you know, cinema is no longer this monolithic screen cultural force and that to really understand the relationships between our our technological mediations in the environment, we need to look at a much more complex and dynamic network of practices, machinery, things like that. No, that's great. Actually, you were right where I was going next. I was going to ask you, like, what what is environmental media studies and how is it different from environmental studies? That's a that's a great question. Um, usually I'm, I have to differentiate it from media studies, not from environmental studies. Uh, so for the most part, uh, environmental media studies does not focus so much on climate science or environmental sciences, uh, but instead ways in which especially in our journal, we frame it on a very contemporary level. Uh, so ways in which primarily digital screen culture mediates our relationship to surrounding environments, whether that is on a global scale in terms of understanding and communicating climate change, or whether it's on like a, a hyper-local scale in terms of, you know, GPS navigation or um, machine sensors that are increasingly being used in order to track environmental data, uh, to track, um, you know, threatened wildlife species, things like that. But, it, you know, it really focuses on the materiality of media practice and also on the relationship between these increasing, the increasing dependency on digital mediation and issues of social justice, injustice, and, and problems of what we call environmental justice. Yes. And so what I think is really interesting, because I know you highlighted how it, you know, climate science is not necessarily like the sole focus or investment, right? And when we're talking about things like the internet, for example, I think this is a really interesting point of convergence. Um, and so I was wondering, because our topic today is, you know, obviously talking about the internet and the environment, um, kind of what connections did you make between the internet and your previous work or like kind of what also sparked this interest in 
potentially combining or converging these these fields? Um, so, so the book that came out in 2019, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret, is an environmental counter narrative uh, to Hollywood history, and as such, is kind of a an environmental counter narrative to the mythologies of 20th century mainstream screen culture in general. And in being so, it actually became very focused on the transition to digital practice at the end of the 21st century and the uh, sort of predominance of digital practice in in Hollywood, but also in sort of everyday life uh, in the 21st century. And so if you look at, you know, some of the major environmental impacts of, of 20th century analog film, they involve things like uh, the manufacturing of the material base like film stock. They involve the energy dependency and natural resource use that is so heavy in production. They involve the pollution and waste runoff that are generated by all of these levels, whether it's production, distribution, exhibition. A lot of that changes uh, with the shift to digital production. And so at the end of the 90s, you see these two convergent things happening. Uh, Hollywood is going digital and Hollywood claims to be going green. And just like in a lot of... uh, the way that smart tech has built the digital revolution, so did Hollywood build this as a green revolution. But the fact is that they are only really conjoined historically and that they kind of emerged in the 90s. They kind of catered to similar zeitgeists. They catered to similar audiences. And it was a great way for Hollywood to rebrand itself. That being said, you know the ushering in of the digital age comes with vastly different environmental problems. It's rooted in the precious metal mining of components that go into all of our screen devices, which is done both environmentally irresponsibly, but also in conjunction with really really problematic labor practices. You know, then those metals go to labor campuses, also known as sweatshops, or what, what we're used to call uh, sweatshops. Uh, where similar, you know, environmentally hazardous and labor problematic, socially unjust practices are used to formulate, to, to, to build these devices. And then they are, of course, you know, packaged in plastics, shipped all over the world, purchased, and then they're used, but based on the law of obsolescence, they tend to break or to stop working or to not be adaptable to new software. So we get rid of them, but we have no way to get rid of them safely. And so they tend to be outsourced to digital dumping grounds and villages uh, in nations like Ghana and India and China, where primarily women and children who are, you know, marginalized from economies which themselves have been marginalized from a global economy for centuries and in many ways were uh, you know oppressed historically through colonization where children and women burn these devices down to try to salvage any sort of recyclable precious metals inside in the process undergoing very carcinogenic uh, daily work and the process itself has already seen chemicals seeping into groundwater and things like that, and children in local villages being born with birth defects. So, you know, all of these are are part and parcel of this larger rampant, and now because of COVID, because, you know, we're all quarantining, telehealth, teleeducation, existence has gone online, and we're just, you know, deepening our dependency on these devices. You know, these are the environmental footprints 
of digital culture, which of course is more than just filmmaking. It's more than just the special effects of Twister or it's, you know, or the digital animation of WALL-E. And it's more than just streaming Netflix. It is you know, part of a much vaster uh, infrastructure, but also interconnected set of global and localized daily practices, whereby we're all connected to this, to this problem. And part of why I think it got, it, it expanded so rapidly and without regulation, right? You know, the actual, the, the growth of digital culture and our adoption of digital culture as central to our lives happened far more quickly than any sort of legal or legislative oversight could account for far more quickly than any sort of sociological or psychological studies could be done to understand the, the psychological and social impacts of them, which we're seeing a lot now, you know, far more, uh, and far more quickly than any sort of environmental studies could be done to actually gauge what those impacts would be. Now, one major reason I think that that happened is this sleight of hand whereby the smart tech industry convinced everyone that digital culture data is immaterial, right? And that's why these, these terms like the cloud became so popular because it makes it sound like this stuff is not stuff, that data is not a thing. And so it's very easy for us to take it for granted and to feel entitled to an infinite access to increasingly fast information exchange, but also sort of boundless archiving. Now, the problem is that, of course, it is finite and it's material. It's just happening in server farms that we don't see and that are running all day long and using massive amounts of energy, mostly off of dirty energy grids. And the data is being snaked through subsea cables uh, and then across terrestrial cables, and it's being beamed from satellites that are just orbiting our planet. All of those things are, are super material, are very, very much material. And so this is sort of where the, not even the rubber meets the road. It's kind of like where the rubber never met the road because the, the industries managed to keep these things out of sight, managed to keep these concerns off our radar uh, just as a, a larger, I think, audience or, or um, customer base. Uh, and that's, uh, that is now starting to become a bit more revealed, I think. And so that's where you know, the original project on Hollywood really grew into a project on the digitization of Hollywood, which then became a, you know, a much larger set of interconnected projects on digital culture in general. No, this was absolutely excellent. I, I'm excited to actually unpack this a little bit further in just a moment. But first, we do need to go to a break. So Sounds good. Um, you're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Hunter Vaughn about the material realities of the internet and its connection to the environment. So circling back, you, you talked a lot about these different... I, would, I don't want to say invisible because they are definitely visible things, but the invisible sides of, of the ways in which we, we use technology or we rely on it every single day or use the internet, for example. Um, and I, 
I personally am fascinated by how my understanding at one point in my life of the internet was, oh, I, I just connect to the Wi-Fi or I just connect this device to this little cord that is plugged into the wall and then happy day, I have internet. Uh, but that's actually not even entirely close to the amount of infrastructure and things going on behind the scenes or even underneath the surface of, of the, the earth almost. It's, it's fascinating. So it kind of leads me to this other understanding of now I know there's literally, I guess, estimates of 750,000 miles of subsea cables running throughout the world's oceans. And I just wondered if you could explain what these cables are, why they matter, and perhaps like when did this get started? Like, were these cables the first cables for telecommunication or anything to ever happen? Or like, what's the history um, behind all of that? That's that's a lot of of stuff right there. I'll I'll go in reverse order because I think the the history probably helps, and I would definitely acknowledge that a lot of our understanding the, of this is indebted to Nicole Staroselsky, uh, who is a friend of a friend and a, a colleague um, and collaborator at New York University, and she came out with a book in 2015 uh, called The Undersea Network, and it's this really amazing media studies, history, anthropological approach to ways in which the subsea cable industry or the subsea cable network grew up around the world, how it interconnected spaces, nations, continents, islands, but also how its implementation and the building of its landing sites helped to shape both, you know, social and material architecture and things like that. Um, the history of it, and she's she's the lead on our, our on this project that uh, I assume we'll be talking about in a bit. The history starts actually with the telegraph, and so as of the 1850s, we already had subsea cables being laid across the Atlantic, and so the international communication that was sort of envisioned by the telegraph paved the way for this. And the telegraph cables that were led, uh, laid in the second half of the 19th century, so from the 1850s on, were then just replicated by the telephone and fiber optic cables, which then led to cable exchange and the internet. It's, it's baffling sometimes just how directly overlapping the expansion of the infrastructure of the internet was, whether it's subsea or in uh, terrestrial cables, to mimic and to follow the pathways of the telephone cables that themselves are following the pathways of the telegraph cables. Um, so almost as shocking as just how much subsea cable, you know, we are now operating with in terms of the internet, it actually goes back that far and has been going on for, for quite a while. So these are fiber optic cables that are connecting, again, continents, countries across the world, uh, they were, or, I mean, they, they, they are manufactured largely by heavy industrial manufacturers, um, who make things like cables. Like it's just sort of what they do. And this is just the form that's most popular now. Um, and they were largely, uh, which was largely dominated by Western European and American manufacturers. But now I'm pretty sure the majority is actually being manufactured in China. And so you can see a sort of shift, right, in this, like, in the, the power tides of global capitalism 
and and manufacturing as it moves from like continental continental Europe to the U.S. to China. And the part of our project is really looking also not only at the environmental impacts of these cables and especially working with cable companies to try to develop environmentally a, a more environmentally sustainable future for the industry, but also looking at the local, regional, and international laws that are governing their usage and that might be able to change the way that they operate in the future. But for now, and for the most part of at least the internet's life, they have been, uh, they've been operated by telecom corporations who then tend to rent them out to carriers uh, like Google or Amazon, for example. So the telecom corporations that own the cables or at least operate the cables, you know, they rent them out to carriers like Google or Amazon. But increasingly, and this has only happened in the past 10 years, content providers like Amazon and Google have gone from something around 10% of global internet traffic to like 60%. And so they used to be a small minority. Now they're actually a majority of, of bandwidth that's being used. And because of that, and we see this, you know, you see how much money Amazon has made during the pandemic, um, or at least Jeff Bezos has made while tens of thousands of Amazon workers get COVID. You, you, know, you see how the financial uh, proliferation of wealth and capital within these content providers over the past 10 years has led them to shift their leverage in position. So companies like Google went from uh, carriers or clients who would rent the cables to owners who purchased the cables, and now they're starting to lay their own cable networks. And so that's sort of where the future, I think, of this industry lies is is in a sort of split between the traditional uh, the traditional organization uh, between telecom companies and clients, and this new emergence of big capital in a very small group of hands, who, in order to foster their content service providing are actually going to be either challenging, competing with, or at least doubling up that that subsea cable skeleton. Yeah, I I think that it's, again, fascinating to know, like, there's literally hundreds of thousands of miles of these cables. These are, now we've got companies that are competing for, for access or ownership, or just simply starting to expand. And it brings me back to the question of, like, what exactly do the cables do? Like we know it's connecting the internet, like we we know all of that, but what what does it mean or like why is there such a, you know, vested interest by these corporations? I think the vest I mean the vested interest is is twofold and you know from people I've talked to in the the cable industry who have been really collaborative on this project thus far and I think really want to be collaborative on it for a variety of reasons is that you know they really believe that global telecommunication is an important road for the future to lead to connectedness to lead to intercultural communication and awareness to lead to the possibility of globalized economies and exchanges and i you know they are concerned about doing so in a sustainable way if that is possible there is also, you know, financial incentive. This is a 
massive source of revenue because again, you know, because our world has become so wired and so dependent on this, you know, this is like over 90% of our global finance and culture flows through these subsea cables. Now, what do they do and what are they? Uh, well, first of all, lots of them do nothing. In fact, they lie dormant because it's very problematic to try to pull them up. And so this is part of, you know, part of our larger, longer term project is to help facilitate plans for cable recycling and reclamation because most of the carriers or the owners of the cables do not want them dredged up because it's a very, first of all, it's a very environmentally intensive process. It's a very uh, financially intensive process, but it's also a risky process in case, you know, it destabilizes, snaps the wrong cable in case it interrupts or, you know, somehow causes problems with the live wires that are, that are still moving information. And so hopefully we can move towards a way of repairing them more easily and or reclaiming and, and recycling them. Uh, the ones that are live are, you know, largely connecting nations and continents. So, you know, across the U.S., there are a good amount of terrestrial cables uh, that are helping to connect cities. But many continents don't have that same terrestrial infrastructure. And so one of, you know, the, the probably my largest point of fascination with the larger project is the role that Miami plays as a massive hub for this. And it's also because it reflects the role that Miami plays as a sort of cultural and financial hub for Latin America and a connecting point between Latin America, the U.S., and the rest of the world. And so if you look at, you know, Latin America, South America, or I mean, Central America and the Caribbean, there aren't many terrestrial, I mean, the Caribbean is islands, so there are no terrestrial cables can connect the islands. And so instead, you have like a loop of subsea cables or two that's connecting them and then connecting them to Miami and maybe connecting them to Brazil. And then you have, you know, along like the, the West, no, sorry, the Eastern coast uh, of South America, which is largely Brazil, you have two or three major connection points. You have Fort Fortaleza, uh, Buenos Aires, and uh, sorry, Rio de Janeiro and um, Sao Paulo. And these are largely connected to places in the U S mostly Miami or South Florida, uh, but then there are some others up the eastern seaboard, um, New Jersey, Virginia. And then those are connected via Atlanta subsea cable to Europe. Now, I'm pretty sure that over the past five years, very recently, there has been a subsea cable connecting Brazil to the African continent as well. And that increasingly cable providers are going to start building terrestrial cables across Brazil, or sorry, across uh, South America. But in the meantime, almost all of this information is going via subsea cable. Uh, so while it's gone down from like 85 to 80%, still 80% of Latin American data goes through the US, almost all of it through Miami from Brazil. And so largely, it's still the case that if someone in Brazil is emailing someone in Chile, it actually goes via Miami, which is really baffling and confusing. Um, but it's really, it's, it's all about efficiency. It's all about data transmission efficiency. And right now that's the most efficient way that that message can be sent, which means that you have, you know, you have cable landing sites in South Florida 
that are these major connection points, not only between Latin America and the U.S., but between Latin America and Latin America and between Latin America and Europe. Um, so that's what they're doing is they're just transmitting crazy amounts of data all day, every day. And they're doing it in ways that, you know, have there, there's a history that I'm just starting to unpack and sort of, you know, discover the tip of the iceberg uh, of ways in which these networks were originally configured and why they were built according to the arrangements they were built. Um, but a lot of it follows with the sort of history of hemispheric politics and the history of, you know, larger growth of global capitalism. Yeah, that's something that actually strikes me as well because it would I would think like oh if you know what if there's an international conflict between countries like are they going to cut these cables and like actually no there's a, there's a vested interest in not doing that uh, just because of how interconnected the global economy is and so um and I also think too that's just wild how how much traveling uh an email has to do right to get between between parties and I think that's something that when I hit send on an email, I'm I'm not really probably thinking about, uh, which which brings me back to to talking about the manufacturing process of the cables, and um, I also was interested in, in exploring that a little bit more, just because I think that goes in hand with with the manufacturing and like the environmental costs of that. And I was wondering, can you explain more about those environmental costs of the cables? Like, is it completely in the manufacturing side? Is it in the practice of placing them in the ocean? Like how, like where, I guess, where are the environmental costs coming from? Yeah. So there are different parts of the subsea cable industry. Um, there's manufacturing, there is, which is, you know, hardcore industrial manufacturing. There is repair and laying, which basically is, requires massive ships using heavy oil. And there's a big carbon footprint to that, as well as a marine ecosystem disruption inherent in that. And then there is the cable landing sites themselves. And that's right now, the cable landing sites are the focus of our study. Hopefully at some point we can expand to all the stages, right, of, of the industry because they are fairly intensive. The cable landing sites themselves are among the, the least intensive in terms of just like pure sort of uh, natural resource use, but they are extremely energy dependent. And the way that the cables have been laid you know, I, I think there's there's some debate around it, but they are probably a less disruptive than many of the other types of cables and uh, pipelines that we also have, you know, running along the ocean floor. But that being said, they are there, right? And they are gradually going to be dissolving. They there is a history of their interaction with marine wildlife. Um, including, I think it was like an old, very old telegraph cable that captured a whale because it was using it to scrape off its barnacles and it got tangled in it. And then they had to like reclaim the cable with a drowned whale that was tied up in it. Uh, there are stories of sharks clipping cables. Uh, I, I think there's, you know, there are probably there's stories of like boat motors accidentally 
clip it or, or, you know, there's, it's a vast world down there with a lot of stuff going on and a lot of animals moving around. And now they're these, these cables are just part of it. And so, you know, for, for the most part, their being there should not be that disruptive, but that's also if we assume that the various biomes that we have invaded with the staples of human industry just adapt to our being there or just adapt to our objects being there. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, the history of like marine or maritime technology and media, such as ping technology being used for sonar, um, which was developed uh, as, as part of like military research, but then became a huge part of, of global shipping uh, as well as fishing. Um, you know, it's been proven now that that type of technology is actually very problematic for marine ecosystems. It actually affects marine wildlife. And then, of course, it's used to make marine biomes more accessible and navigable by massive ships, which then pollute them and disrupt them further. Or in the case of warfare, blow them up. Um, so there's, you know, there's a long history. It's not just the subsea cables that are part of this human endeavor, um, to not necessarily invade, but, you know, to, to somehow manage ocean spaces and seas. So, yeah, so there's, you know, there's all these different stages of the, of the cable network, but each one has separate environmental issues. And so on a manufacturing side, you could try to find ways um, to have the manufacturing process be less carbon intensive or to find ways that it's less pollutant. On the uh, repair, reclamation, and lane side, they need ships that are more high efficiency, uh, more fuel efficient. But that also means retrofitting an entire industry, which costs a lot of money. And then in terms of the cable landing sites and the companies that run them, this has a lot to do with trying to encourage uh, renewable energies um, at the sites themselves. But also, you know, we're talking with companies about ways to make corporate operations more environmentally sustainable. And this is something that, you know, a lot of companies in the 21st century really welcome as a sign of corporate accountability. And, uh, you know, at a time when the industrial effects um, on, you know, environmental effects of, of industry, as well as just general climate change awareness and awareness of, of the climate challenges and threats facing the planet, as this gets higher, then I think that, you know, corporate accountability and things like that become more aware of how necessary it is to, to have that be a part of their mission. Absolutely. Um, and thinking too about, like, I know you mentioned earlier, Amazon, Google, all being extremely invested in either having ownership of cables or laying their own. Um, and I know that in 2019, the New York Times actually released a report that shared that Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook now either are owning or leasing more than half of the undersea bandwidth. And, you know, Going off of what you just mentioned about, you know, the greening or the different ways that, you know, companies are now becoming much more interested in, in trying to do better. Um, what exactly does that mean if, if simultaneous to the 
you know, the expansive growth, there's also this, this push of like, oh, we need to be green or like we need to look a certain way. Is that actually materializing or is it something that is going to take a long time? Uh, and maybe it's, it's something that should have more attention from consumers. Um, should definitely have more attention from consumers, should definitely have more regulation from governance or from governments, and should definitely have more accountability on behalf of the companies and their CEOs and, and executives. In some ways, this is another round of greenwashing. Absolutely. And you know, a lot of these major companies, major tech companies, have set forth some vision of a uh, carbon net zero plan for the future. By 2030, I think was Microsoft. There was a big social media blast about a year ago or two years ago that Google had set forth a rapid net zero plan, but it was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> By uh, It might have been uh, Extinction Rebellion, I think, as <laughs> an April Fool's joke. Um, there are, you know, uh, Apple, for example. So Apple has uh, massive server farms that run all of its apps. So Apple Maps, iTunes, all of that is being run, you know, by extremely energy intensive uh, servers. And as of a couple years ago, at least, uh, Apple's server farms were being powered by solar farms that they had set up around them. So... You know, for an example like that, and I know that Apple's main corporate office or one of their big corporate offices, their new big corporate office is also powered completely by renewable energy. That's awesome. Like that is actual stuff that's happening. Um, and those are things that can happen, I think, in increasing that, that can happen increasingly. And so the more that we can create a clean or renewable energy grid that leads to less greenhouse gas emissions and uh, less reliance on these massively carbon intensive uh, industries like fossil fuels, that's great. That, that, that would be a long-term, a massive long-term benefit. The problem is that, first of all, we haven't gotten there. And secondly, there continue to be large-scale production by companies like Apple. So as I think you kind of frame the question, right, does it really offset itself? And I would say, no, it doesn't. And the idea, and this is why there are a lot of debates in general about the problems of net zero visions in general, is that for the most part, they require forms of offsetting instead of actual decreases in manufacturing and, and things like that. And so I think that with, you know, if we continue to manufacture more, which has been the broad trend of the past 30 years in smart tech and big tech. And I don't see that stopping without some form of regulation or a complete implosion of the global ecosystem. Not sure which of those might happen first. Um, but, but without that, I don't see that trend changing. And if that trend doesn't change, then you know they can build all the solar farms they want to power their offices and their server farms, but there's still a very, very heavy environmental footprint that's going to be left. And so I think that, you know, Google for Google, maybe less so than Apple, because Google's products are mainly data, right? Uh, and, and information might have better arguments for, for why that is uh, 
a possible future, but Google's also becoming increasingly connected to larger digital visions like uh, smart cities. And so they were brought into Toronto for a couple of years to try to develop a smart city area on their um, waterfront like promenade. Um, and after a couple of years, Toronto abandoned it and kicked them out because basically what it was, was just installing a massive new digital infrastructure of, you know, data sensing, machine to machine communication, things like that, that get basically turns all of daily life into data and then uses that to try to render things more efficient, such as traffic lights, right? Or street lights and things like that, which in theory is probably a good thing, but in practice requires a massive stage of production and infrastructure building, which is usually left out of these sort of techno-fetishistic digital utopian visions of the future. And so, you know, if if that type of vision is given into as, as sort of the future of urban planning, and that's already been threatened by, you know, New York City bringing in Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, to help rebuild New York after the pandemic as a smart city. And if that's sort of the vision for urban planning, uh, that's the product of all of this technological development, then again, like the actual nods toward making it net zero is still just allowing for massively environmentally problematic um production, manufacturing, and construction. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Hunter Vaughn about the material realities of the internet and its connections to the environment. So I think that this conversation has been extremely helpful in kind of laying the foundation of understanding like what these cables are, the corporate interests, like all of these different levels um, of governance at play. Um, complexities around them. And so I was kind of wanting to shift a little bit now to talking about your work with Suboptic. Um, specifically, like, what are the goals of Suboptic? Um, what are your roles in the project? And, you know, have these cables been studied or monitored to understand their impacts before? Um, are y'all building off of, of something in the past? Or I guess kind of like, what what exactly are you all hoping to do? Um, yeah, so this has not been done before. Um, other than Nicole's work, very little research uh, or analysis assessment has been done on the environmental ramifications of the subsea cable industry. More has been done uh, for that of data centers, um, which has become a fairly popular object of inquiry. And so part of what we're hoping to do is in understanding better the way that the the subsea cable network works and the environmental effects in, uh, of it is to understand the internet better as a whole. Um, this is very much uh, the skeleton or the um, circulatory system of the internet. And so to understand 
you know, to, to be able to try to, to quantify and to come up with best practices and things like that for this particular part of, of the digital world of the internet as a whole would really, really, um, add, contribute to our and to society or other scholars, uh, broader understanding of how the internet works and, you know, what some of the ramifications of its operation are. Uh, the Suboptic Foundation or Association is uh, kind of like the professional organization that brings together these subsea cable companies. Um, and, you know, we have been fortunate that Nicole has been working with them for quite a while, and she's, she's involved there on numerous levels. And really what their role in this is, is to give us access to that world. Um, and so that means mainly data and uh, personal insight in the forms of interviews. Uh, the data can definitely help us to um, construct and then run, you know, a methods built carbon footprint assessment. But the problem is that, you know, that the environmental impacts of this industry, like most industries, is that it's not just carbon, right? It's not just a carbon issue. And so we don't want to just focus on that. And so any ways in which we can basically push for not just like corporate sustainability, but environmental sustainability, um, and not only as a buzzword, but as, you know, a pillar of, of, of action and, and policy in the industry, uh, will be built, that'll be built on our understanding of how the industry works, how corporate decisions are made, how the landing sites themselves are operated, but also on the industry members' interest in collaborating, which to this point has been really high, which is, I think, why this project, you know, really stands a chance to contribute something very, very tangible and long lasting. Um, and so, yeah, so that is the goal more broadly speaking, but also in terms of, of suboptics specific role. That's great. And kind of in the spirit of learning as well, I was wondering uh, if you had any insight on like, what can listeners do to learn more or potentially what actions can they take? Um, you know, in this particular case, not that much. Um, and I think that that's, sorry. Um, I think that that is, tends to be a problem with the way that neoliberalism has shaped the climate debate in order to put the onus of responsibility onto the shoulders of individual consumers whose individual consumer choices can't actually impact that much as long as larger scale industry practice, corporate practice, global capitalism keeps functioning the way it has. Um, and so I think that, you know, the best thing that individual consumers, customers, listeners can do is to vote um, and to hold politicians accountable and to try to push for local and national governance that holds corporations accountable and that has a really firm uh, climate 
policy. If people are interested in what they can do, there's, you know, there are a number of things. Uh, don't upgrade your phone as soon as you have the option. Um, and this is a tough thing to avoid because there's all this weird peer pressure and like social capital and having the, the new gadget. And especially now that a lot of, of jobs and, and the workplace, you know, operates through them, we feel like we have to have them in order to be candidates for particular, you know, career opportunities and things like that. Um, so I would say resist that, that social drive. Um, if possible, get some, you know, if you have to buy something to replace something, then get something that's used and repaired. Uh, but I would start by trying to repair whatever you had before. Um, other things people can do, I think, is not to purchase infinite external storage space. And I think that this is more of like a, an ideal um, or, or a principle, right? Um, and lastly, I would say try to turn off mechanisms within data streaming apps and programs that automatically start the next episode. Uh, that's how a lot, you know, like we used to just watch one episode of something and now we watch like 11 and then we fall asleep and the next seven play. Um, and so I think that, you know, these are just things. And I mean, that's something where it's like, that won't necessarily save the world, but it is an indication of a larger shift in cultural values uh, and environmental awareness and, and perceptions of, of the relationship between media practice and the environment, which, you know, these are daily things that then get, I think, um, internalized uh, into larger worldviews. And those that ends up being articulated in ways that might actually lead to real change. Absolutely. I, I love that. I like, I love that note to end on too. Uh, cause there, there are small things we can do, but I also really appreciated that reminder as well, that what about the corporations? Like what about, you know, what, what about all of these larger footprints that are happening that are beyond our potential impact or the scope of what we contribute as individuals? And, um, I think that all of this together just reminds me of, of how important this topic is, um, how, you know, hopefully in the future, we'll continue, especially with all of your work on suboptic to, to hopefully, you know, get to a point where things can get better and, you know, figure out how we can, how we can reduce all of that carbon and the different processes that are happening. So thank you so much for sharing all of your insights today. Um, I really appreciated it. Um, and I, I hope that your work continues to go well with, with suboptic and otherwise. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on the show. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Dr. Hunter Vaughn about the material realities of the internet and the environment. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Vaughn's work, visit www.huntervaughn.net slash... I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. 
We would love to hear your comments or your guest ideas, so you can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.